Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. Today we are looking in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 20. Uh, again, we are in the section of Acts in which the church in Antioch of Syria sent out Paul and, Bar Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries, to be church planters in the Roman Empire. They went first to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. From there, they traveled north to Pamphylia, which is modern-day Turkey. In Acts 13, Luke tells us about their stop in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, and in that city, they begin by going to the synagogue, and we'll see that that is their strategy in every place that they go. If there's a synagogue, that's where they start. After a reading uh, from the Law and the Prophets, Paul and Barnabas were asked if they would like to share uh, with those who were gathered at the synagogue that day. So Luke records for us the longest, most detailed sermon we have from Paul when he was preaching in a synagogue there in chapter 13. And it was in this context that he referred often to the law and the prophets and the things he had to say. All who were there would understand that the scripture and all that scripture was inspired by God. And Paul spoke of how the Lord specifically called out and set his love on the people of Israel. They were blessed above all other nations, but in spite of that, they were often rebellious to the Lord. Even though that was true, the Lord promised to send the Messiah through the descendants of David, their king. And then Paul makes it very clear that that prophecy had been answered. Jesus Christ was the one that God sent in fulfillment of what had been promised. But the Jewish leaders who led in those readings from the Law and the Prophets every Sabbath, refused to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies. They rejected him, called for him to be crucified by Pilate, the governor of Rome. But even as they were rejecting Jesus, they were in the process of fulfilling many of those prophecies themselves. Well, Paul, of course, emphasizes that Jesus Christ also rose from the dead. The Old Testament prophesied that would happen also. And as the resurrected Lord, he appeared to many people over a period of 40 days before he ascended then to the right hand of the Father. And Paul points out that many of those people who witnessed the resurrected Christ were preaching of him in the present. And he says that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming the same message that they were proclaiming. And then Paul spoke of the things that were available because of what Jesus Christ had accomplished. By faith in Jesus Christ, we will be forgiven of sin. He endured the wrath that every sinner deserves when we, he died as our substitute on the cross. And because of that, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are fully forgiven of our sin because of what he accomplished. By faith, Jesus Christ is also our righteousness. We are justified in Christ. Jesus Christ earned that perfect righteousness by his perfect obedience to the law of God. And again, when we put our faith in Christ, we're not only forgiven, our sin is not only removed, but in place of that, we are given a record of perfect righteousness before God. Well, after being very clear then about this amazing good news, Paul then once again referred to the prophets, and he gave a warning to those who would not believe this gospel. There is great danger in rejecting the salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners because there's no other way to be right with God other than faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To reject Jesus Christ means that one will be condemned to eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Because if we will not accept the payment that he made for our sin, then we must pay for our sin ourselves. And that's what hell is. Well, Paul is wise to end his sermon actually with a warning. 
It turned out that the Jewish synagogue leaders did actively reject the things that Paul and Barnabas were saying. And because of their rejection, they ended up blaspheming, which meant they denied Jesus was the Christ, which also means they denied that he was the Son of God. They were committed to their unbelief. Well, Paul and Barnabas then once again referred to something from the Law and the Prophets that affirmed that they would now take the gospel to the Gentiles since it had been rejected by the, by the Jewish leaders. Well, the Gentiles were rejoicing in this. They were actively glorifying the word of the Lord while the Jewish leaders were actively denying the word of the Lord. Those Jewish leaders also were so violently opposed to Jesus Christ that they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and as a result, they were forced to leave Antioch, and they moved on to the city of Iconium. Well, Iconium was like 90 miles from Antioch. It was in the province that was known as Galatia. In fact, the church that was started in Iconium is probably one of the churches that was addressed in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So let's look now at Acts 14, 1 to 20 to find out what happened when they went to Iconium. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, laying from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they became calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying and saying, Men, Why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium uh, came, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. There's several things that we note in these verses. One is that the gospel is still front and center. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are intent on sharing the good news with others. 
we also see that opposition to the gospel continues to be an issue. Here we see that opposition taking on some different forms from what we saw in Antioch, but opposition continues. And finally, we see how Paul and Barnabas especially addressed the issue of idolatry that arose. So the first thing we're reminded of is this, that the gospel of Christ is the fundamental hope for all people. When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Alconium, they do the same thing they did in Cyprus and in Antioch. They go to the local synagogue first. And once again, when they were there, they preached of Jesus Christ. Luke doesn't go into any detail here about what they said, but we can assume that it was very much the same as what he spoke in Antioch. In verse 1, we see that they spoke in such a manner, they were speaking this word in such a manner that many believed. In verse 3, we are told they spent a long time speaking boldly of the word of grace. In verse 7, we see that they continued to preach the gospel. Beginning in verse 8, we are told of their time in Lystra. And once again, we see in verse 9 that Paul is preaching. In verses 15 to 17, they share a number of key gospel truths to those who were seeing Paul and Barnabas as some of the gods of mythology. There is no greater hope for mankind than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's two things I want to say about that. First is this. Believers must persevere, must persevere in regular application of the gospel truth for themselves and as a witness to others, even when times are hard. First thing I want to point out is that Paul and Barnabas persevered in their ministry because the gospel had changed their lives. We know that Paul had been trying to deal with sin in his life by being very conscientious about his obedience of the interpretation of God's law that the Jewish rabbis had made, and he failed. He further thought that by persecuting those who believed that Jesus was the Christ, that would put him in good standing with God, and he was 100% wrong about that. Well, Christ revealed himself personally to Paul, and Paul believed. At that point, the whole trajectory of his life changed. He realized now he was eternally grateful to, for God's grace to him through Christ. It changed his life. Well, the first time we're introduced to, from the first time we are introduced to Barnabas, we see that he was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and committed to his church. The love that Barnabas had for Christ was evident in the love he showed to fellow believers. His life was centered around the fact that Jesus Christ was his Lord and Savior. Well, we know that Paul and Barnabas received opposition to their commitment to Jesus as Lord in Cyprus. They received significant opposition in Antioch. And now we see more opposition in Iconium and later in Lystra. But in spite of the opposition, they both continue to press on in their faith. They don't waver in the slightest. Unfortunately, we often see people falter in their commitment to Christ. Sometimes people seem to think that being committed to Christ is really not in their best interest. And when they get challenged in their faith by people or by situations, some seem very willing to begin to compromise their Christian faith. That's a real temptation. Paul and Barnabas exemplify the fact that it's important to persevere in the gospel faith no matter what. Where else are you going to go? The, the, the need to persevere. And Paul and Barnabas were so convinced of the truth of the gospel that they persevered in their sharing of the good news with others as well. Once again, they make lots of enemies when they do that. 
but they know they cannot cease to be witnesses for the gospel. That's because the gospel is the fundamental hope for all people. In fact, we notice there in verse 2 and 3 that since the Jews had embittered many people against them, they purposely chose to stay there longer in order to help be a help to the new believers. They would not let the opposition stop them. They are great examples to us of perseverance in the gospel in their own lives and in also helping others to understand the truths of it. And then next, the gospel is a testimony to the word of God's grace in Christ. He will bring its truth to bear on the lives of many who hear. It's a testimony to the word of God's grace. There's a phrase in verse 3 that helps us think about how rich the blessings of the gospel are. It says, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So Paul and Barnabas were speaking boldly of the word. The only way they can do that is by relying on the Lord to give them the strength and the courage that they need. And they were testifying to the word of God's grace. What does that mean? Well, John Gill tells us this. He says, the gospel is good news because it's the publication of the grace and favor of God to the sons of men. Well, the Bible makes it very clear that if God gave us what we deserved, we all receive eternal damnation. That is what we all justly deserve because we have broken his holy law. Grace means we don't get what we deserve. Instead, God grants us favor. It's by God's grace that he sent his only son into the world to redeem sinners. It's by God's grace that Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross for sinners. It's by God's grace that he grants full forgiveness of sin to all who believe. It's by God's grace that he lovingly adopts us into his family and cares for us as his children. It's by God's grace that we're made new creations in Christ. It's by God's grace that we're given eternal life. So when Paul and Barnabas are testifying of God's grace, those things and more are the kind of things they would be talking about. And as they glorified God's grace, God brought the gospel to bear on the lives of many who heard them. They were given faith to believe. In verse 1, we see that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. God also testified to the word of his grace by granting that various signs and wonders were done through them. These miracles were given really to confirm the truth of what they were preaching. The signs obviously don't come about because of any special power that either Paul or Barnabas had. It was God choosing to graciously work through them to confirm the truth of the gospel to those who heard in those special, out-of-the-ordinary kind of ways. So we see first that the gospel of Christ is the fundamental hope for all people. Next, we see that opposition to the gospel takes many different forms. It's really kind of amazing to think that there is so much opposition to the word of God's grace that's there to grant favor to sinful people, but there is lots of opposition to that message. And it shows itself in many different ways. First, we see here what we also saw in their ministry in Pisidian Antioch is that opposition can come from those who know the truths of the scripture but refuse to believe. They know the truths of the Scripture, but refuse to believe. Verse 2, But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. 
It's the Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures. It's the Jews who read from the law, the prophets, and the writings every Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures. They were quite well versed in the scriptures. Their history was contained in the scriptures. Their understanding of what was right and wrong is contained in the scriptures. Their hopes were based on the prophecies and promises of the scriptures. (coughs) But in spite of that, the Jewish leaders gave, gave leadership to the opposition to the gospel. In Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, they organized violent opposition to Paul and Barnabas to keep them from sharing the word of the Lord. And these were the religious people who knew the scriptures but would not believe them. As strange as this sounds, this is very common in our day as well. Uh, Some of the people, we talked about this some last week, but I want to give you an example. For the example this week, some of the people who are most opposed to key doctrines of the Christian faith are part of particular denominations, particular ministers who speak of their allegiance to the word of the Lord at the same time. I recently read an article by Al Mohler that really gives a very troubling example of that. He was interacting with another article from a well-known magazine known as The Economist. The title of the article is this, Near My God to Me, Why God is Becoming More Liberal. Of course, God's not becoming more liberal, but he's also not becoming more conservative. God doesn't change. God is perfect. He's unchangeable. What the author is saying is that there are a number of well, and this is a British author, that there are a number of well-established denominations who have been changing their ideas of what the Bible says about various issues. She points out that the Methodist Church in England, after prayerful consideration, have decided to allow same-sex marriage. The church in Wales has done the same thing. The Anglican Church will consider the same question this year. As a foregone conclusion, they'll do the same thing. And a number of denominations in the United States have decided that same issue in that way. And the author points out it's not going to stop there. They are likely going to come out with approval for many other variations on what is generally understood to be biblical morality because it's what the Bible teaches. So sadly, these are people who know the truths of the Scripture but refuse to believe them. These groups like to point out that God is love and that he would never hold someone accountable for these kinds of behaviors that the culture at large fully accepts. And of course, that means he would never send a person to hell. And if he would never send a person to hell, there was no need for Jesus Christ to come and suffer in the first place on the cross. There are serious, these are serious oppositions to the word of the Lord and to the gospel. And tragically, many people find their arguments convincing. But like Paul and Barnabas, we have to persevere in our belief and our commitment to the gospel and to the word of the Lord. Well, these verses also show us that opposition can come from those who see it as a threat to their influence. Verses 4 to 7. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the opposition against Paul and Barnabas, they were able to convince the civil magistrates 
to orchestrate persecution against them. They made plans to mistreat them and um, surely at the encouragement of the Jews to stone them to death because that was how the Jews would execute was by stoning. So when Paul and Barnabas heard of this plan, they fled, they left. By the way, we need to note here, they didn't flee because they were scared, because they were trying to save their lives. They fled so that they could continue to share the word of the Lord elsewhere. And they also fled because that's what Jesus told them to do. In Matthew 10, 23, Jesus said, whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. So this was the right thing for them to do. You will note that this opposition included the civil magistrates, the civil rulers. Both the Jews and the rulers of the city were concerned about how much attention Paul and Barnabas were getting. This would cause their own influence over the people to become less, so they persecute the believers. This is likely the motivation for many nations in our day who make it a standard practice to persecute Christians. Believers are committed to Jesus Christ as their Lord. We read about that in our statement of faith. The civil magistrates, yes, God has, anointed, has, has placed them there, but ultimately Jesus Christ is our Lord. Well, Every Christian knows that Christ is much more important, has the ultimate authority over any civil ruler. Civil rulers don't like this kind of competition. They want, to be the, they want the unqualified allegiance of their citizens. Therefore, oftentimes, Christians are persecuted. Thirdly, we see that opposition can come from those who are committed to various forms of idolatry, various forms of idolatry. What happened in the city of Lystra is very interesting. Let me read verses 8 to 13. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Lystra was about 18 miles south of Iconium. Uh, really, it was directly connected with Pisidian Antioch uh, by a military road. But when they arrived, Paul and Barnabas continued to do what they had been doing in Iconium. Paul was preaching the gospel. There's no mention of the synagogue here, by the way. And based on what happened there, it's very possible that there were very few Jews in the city. So the focus there was on the Gentiles from the beginning. And the Lord was continuing to testify to the word of his grace that Paul was sharing. And one man in particular is singled out. As Paul was preaching, he took notice of a man who had been lame, he says, from birth. The Lord gave faith to this man as he listened, and Paul could really even see by the way the man was responding that this was the case. So as he was preaching, Paul said loudly so that all in the crowd could hear, he says, stand upright on your feet. The man obeyed and faith, sprung to his feet, and began walking. Well, instead of giving glory to God, the crowd began to say, the gods have become like men and come down to us. Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand the things they were saying because of their dialect. 
but they were identifying Barnabas as Jupiter or Zeus. It's the same God. Chief, uh, and uh, Jupiter or Zeus was the chief of the pagan gods. There was a temple to Jupiter at the entrance of this particular city. Well, they called Barnabas Jupiter probably because he was the older of the two. They called Paul Mercury or Hermes in the Greek. Mercury was the messenger of the gods and the spokesman for Jupiter. And there was a legend that Jupiter and Mercury had actually once visited uh, their, their region. Well, the priest of Jupiter brought some oxen, garlands of flowers, apparently draped around the necks of the, of the oxen, to sacrifice them to Paul and Barnabas. Well, it was at this point that Paul and Barnabas are fully understanding what's going on, and they're horrified. Jupiter and Mercury are just a couple of the pantheon of gods that pagan Gentiles and Romans would worship. If they were going to put their faith in Jesus Christ, they would have to give up their allegiance to these gods. They had no intention of doing that, as you can see. Opposition to the gospel can come in the form of false religions. But idolatry in general is just as big of a problem. An idol is anything that we consider as being more important than God. It's something that rules our lives. Instead of saying, God's will be done, we are saying, my will be done. We can make an idol of almost anything. And I've heard before, and I know I've shared this before, an idol is anything you're willing to sin to get or your sin if you don't get it. It's an idol in that case. It's our idols that cause great resistance to us submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, in our culture, it's not going to look like what happened in Lystra. But our modern-day idols are just as controlling. They cause us to resist submitting to the one true God. Well, Paul and Barnabas' response to this attempt to express idolatrous worship to them is what we're going to consider in the final point, and that's this, third main point. The gospel rightly addresses all manner of sin idolatry from a God-centered perspective. So we're looking now at verses 14 to 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robe and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and the generations gone by who permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. One thing to note here is that both Paul and Barnabas are called apostles here. That same thing happened back in verse 4. <clears throat> we know, of course, that Paul was called to be an apostle personally by Jesus Christ. But these verses are the only time that Barnabas seems to be referred to as an apostle as well. The word seems to be used here to draw attention to the authority that Paul and Barnabas had as messengers of the living God in contrast to what's being portrayed by the people identifying them with mythological Greek gods. So Barnabas 
really is not an apostle in the same sense, the same way that Paul is. Well, the first thing we see Paul and Barnabas do is tear their robes to show their horror at the blasphemy against the Lord that was being committed. They rush into the crowd to stop them from doing these ungodly sacrifices. Well, the things that they very clearly and emphatically share with these Gentiles are really instructive. The approach they take is very different than how they approach people who were Jewish. First, they point out that all idolatry is empty and deceptive. All idolatry is empty and deceptive. In verse 15, they say, these actions are wrong. Paul and Barnabas are just flesh and blood men, just like these people are. They're not in any way deserving of worship. So what they are doing is sinful and foolish. The gospel message calls men to turn from these vain things. The word for vain speaks of something that's empty. Matthew Henry speaks of these vain things like this. He says, they're idle things. They're unreasonable. They're unprofitable, which no rational account could be given of nor any real advantage gained from them. The simple way to say it is sin is stupid. Every sin is unreasonable. It doesn't make good sense in the long run. It doesn't help us in any way. In fact, it only leads to ruin. Sin deceives us to make us think that our actions are helpful to us in some way, but it's sin against God and must be repented of. So in this message, Paul and Barnabas directly confront the people with the sin that they are actively engaged in. Well, next, they point out the direction they should be going instead. They make it clear that it's only through the one true and living God, the one true and living God, that true life comes. So they are serving false gods. Their worship is not only foolish, but it's also an affront to the one true God. He is living He is not a lifeless idol. He is life. He is the source of life. He is the giver of eternal life. So all men must turn from sin idolatry to embrace the living God. Then they elaborate a little bit on who this living God is. First, he's the creator to whom all are accountable. The creator. At the end of verse 15, they actually quote from Psalm 146. This is not a prophecy like they would use with the Jews Instead, it's a description of God as the creator of all things. He made the heavens. He made the earth. He made the sea and all that is contained within. So this phrase speaks of all created beings. It speaks of the whole universe and everything that is in the universe. God is the creator of all of it. And because he's the creator of all things, including every person, every person is accountable to the living God. And the living God deserves our worship. He is our maker. He is our creator. But then Paul and Barnabas also point out that he's patient. He is patient so that sinners will be led to repentance. Verse 16, it says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. So these people focused on superstition and idolatry, things that they devised things that they chose, things that they delighted in. Well, by contrast, the Lord called Israel to be his people set apart to him. People of Israel were given the law of God. 
They were given the prophets. They were given the promises of God. They were to be a source of blessing to all other nations. Well, God did not provide this kind of special revelation to the other nations of the world. And the way they responded, these other nations, showed the sinfulness of their hearts. But God was patient. From generation to generation, he was patient. The patience of God is meant to call people to repentance. So we must not assume that God's patience will never come to an end. Instead, we use the opportunity that we have to repent and turn to him. So even though God did not give special revelation to the nations, he did make himself known to them in other ways. So Paul and Barnabas point out that he has made himself known to all, to all through his providential care and the refreshment that he gives. Verse 17 says, Yet he did not leave, them, leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So the Lord still gave a witness to the nations. There are many examples of God's providential goodness to men. He gives rain, which speaks of his ongoing provision of the necessities of life. He gives fruitful provision through the various seasons of the year. This is not to be attributed to an evolving planet. This is the goodness of God demonstrated in very practical ways. And this provision, through this provision, the Lord gives satisfaction, refreshment through all the food he provides. This is really practical. I was thinking this morning, because I was making some application, thinking about this. This morning I had some bacon, eggs, and strawberries. I was really grateful I could taste those things. And you know what? We're grateful to say a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for the food. And I know I've shared this before. I'm really thankful for taste buds. I like the way eggs taste. I like the way bacon tastes. I like the way strawberries taste. That's the goodness of God. He doesn't just provide to have something in your stomach. He makes it good, tasty, so that you enjoy it. That's one of the things that they mentioned here. This is really, are you grateful for how apples taste? Do you like hamburgers? All of that, as we enjoy these things, these are testimonies to us of the goodness of God. And it's meant to draw people to him. Simple, everyday kind of things. Well, Paul makes this truth even more plain over in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 21. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. So that's the conscience part of it. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, now he's going to talk about things that are seen. His invisible attributes... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So the Gentiles were not given the same special revelation that the Jews were given. But God still clearly revealed his divine attributes to them. They would not honor him as God, 
Therefore, their hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened and they end up embracing worthless and deceptive idols instead. Well, as Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming these truths, they were able, barely, to stop the sacrifices of the priest of Jupiter. We're not told that they spoke directly to them of the need for faith in Christ, although at the beginning they talk about the, the, sharing the gospel, so it at least implied there that it probably brought Jesus in, or maybe things were stopped before they could even get to that. We're not totally sure. But we know from the preaching that Paul and Barnabas have done already that that point is crucial. So the next point on your outline is this. It's only through faith in Christ that a person can be forgiven of sin and made righteous before God. When we repent of sin, we turn in faith to Christ. It's only by his death on the cross that we're able to be forgiven. It's only by his life and resurrection that we're able to be made righteous before God. There is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, there's one final thing to take note of in this passage, and it takes us back to where we began this morning. The Lord enables his people to persevere even through the most painful of trials. There's no mention of anyone responding in faith to Paul and Barnabas' message this time. Like I said, they could barely stop them from making the sacrifice to them as if they were mythological Greek gods. But instead, we read this in verse 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went with away with Barnabas to Derby. So at some point after this encounter over the, uh, where their gods and the sacrifice, at some point, Paul and Barnabas get some even more intense opposition. Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium travel over 100 miles, not by car, not by bus, probably walked. They traveled over a hundred miles in order to further persecute these men of God. They could care less about Paul and Barnabas' attempt to turn these pagan people to the worship of the one true and living God. These are Jews who supposedly worship the one true God. They didn't care that they were turning these people away from idolatry. Instead, they convinced the Gentiles to join with them and opposing any furtherance of the gospel. The crowd that was just wanting to sacrifice to them as if they were gods now turn on Paul and stone him. Kind of one, pick one or the other. Either he's a god or we're going to kill him. They think he's dead. They drag him out of the street, which you can imagine is probably pretty painful in itself drag him through the streets of the city, leave him outside the gates of the city. Those who had believed the gospel gather around Paul, surely with sorrow, I mean, just lamenting, concern. I would assume there were probably some prayers being offered up. It doesn't really tell. It just says they gathered around him. And as they were kind of attempting to care and kind of make sense of what's going on, the Lord raised Paul up. He apparently was not actually dead. But it's a miracle nonetheless when you think of all the injuries of being stoned, dragged through the city, 
left for dead. All, by all appearances, he was dead. So that in itself was a miracle. Was able to get up and with great courage, and I'm sure others around him, goes back into the city. <laughs> then he and Barnabas leave the next morning for the next city. Even with such violent opposition, Paul and Barnabas continue. They persevere in their faith. It's hard to get much more, op- more violent opposition to you than what they just had. Just short of death. And they keep on going. Persevere. There was no second guessing their commitment. I wonder if we should turn back. Maybe things are getting too tough. No. They continue to take opportunity to share the gospel with others. The gospel is the fundamental hope for all people. And because of that, we must also persevere in our faith. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. I thank you for examples. I know these examples took place hundreds, even thousands of years ago. But it's so encouraging to us to see men who were fully committed to you, men that you had just drastically changed their lives. And now all, every aspect of their life was centered around the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is my Savior, and that is what defines everything that I do. Lord, help that to continue to be true of us, that the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord defines the person that we are and the things that we do, and the things that we value, and the priorities that we have. Lord, help us, because sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes there is all kinds of, maybe it's just um, words that people say. Maybe it's just what we sense, that, that people are not really happy when, when you are fully committed to Christ. Maybe actually being threatened with the uh, various things. Lord, it's difficult. There's all kinds of trials that make it hard to persevere. But Lord, you are the one who enables us to persevere. Again, it's by your grace. And I just ask that you would continue to grant us the grace to persevere in our faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what our circumstances might be. But we would always be holding firm to you. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to do that. God has been patient with you, but you don't know how much longer that patience is going to last. So take advantage of the goodness of God now. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I have fallen far short. There's things in my life that I know are like idols. I know that's true, and I know that's wrong. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to Him as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. The hymn that we're going to close with is a pretty familiar one, and if you want to use the hymnals, it's in number, it's hymn number 81. <clears throat>